Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Thanks again for the birthday, love. I uh, am 35 now, believe it or not. So it's, uh, yeah, halfway to 40 and, you know, going grayer now. And I wake up and my back hurts and all this stuff. So pray for me if you think about it. Um, Welcome again to RUF, guys. Uh, RUF is a Christian community. Uh, We welcome uh, all who would come uh, to learn about Jesus uh, or to explore Christianity and ask honest questions. And at the same time, uh, RUF is a place to grow. You know, if you're convinced, like, this is true, this is for me, and I want to grow, it's also a place for you and uh, the way, what we look to in order to grow and in order to explore who Jesus is, is the Bible. And we believe all of the Bible is worth looking at. And this semester, uh, each night at RUF, we're going to be looking at a portion of the, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we're calling this series Joy in a World Gone Flat because Paul is known in this letter particularly about Uh, for writing about joy a lot. He rejoices a lot in this letter, which is surprising because uh, he's writing from prison. And so uh, it's a really important book for, I think, today's situations, you know, just what life in this world is like today where there is not uh, always a lot of joy. And uh, so last week we introduced the letter and we saw uh, how Paul is all about the gospel. And we saw how the gospel changes everything. It's this good news that when you hear it, uh, it pushes you out and it pushes you toward love and toward holiness. And this week we're going to zoom in uh, specifically on God's purpose as uh, in the midst of trials. And uh, so we're, this is where Paul talks kind of very honestly about what he's dealing with, and it's really amazing. So uh, I'll, let me read it for us, uh, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, which is up here. Uh, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, and that could be brothers and sisters, it's just a generic term, uh, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to this word, uh, we, we need it, Lord. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Uh, make us different tonight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'm watching the TV show right now, The Good Place. Anybody watching The Good Place? Okay, a few hands. Yeah, if you don't know, The Good Place is a show about the afterlife. And in some ways, it kind of pokes fun at these, these ideas like heaven and God. And, but in other ways, it has some pretty profound truth in it, I think, at times. And it's a really funny show, too, so it's definitely worth watching. And uh, there's one aspect of the show, like, it's about afterlife, and there's this aspect of the show where the people, without giving away too much, the people in charge of the afterlife have the ability to snap their fingers in its start. They can start the afterlife over for some of the characters. So, like... And they're trying to make, like, orchestrate different situations with these characters about what their lives in the afterlife will be like. And if they don't like how the scenario is going, they just snap their finger. And, you know, the person, it's as if they had just died and arrived in the afterlife again. It's this reset. And they reset these characters, like, hundreds of times in uh, the good place. And they wake up, and they're just like, have I died? And it starts over. And they change different scenarios around. And they see, like, what's going to happen if we introduce them to this person in the afterlife? How will that change things? And I want you to think about that idea of a reset. Uh, What are the moments and circumstances in your life when you wish you could hit the reset button? Like, what if you could go back and start college again or start high school again? And you could do things differently. Or, you know, what's that moment you get to that point and you're like, man, how did I end up here? Is there a reset button? Like, can I go back and do things differently? Can I avoid getting to this place right now? Like, my life really wasn't supposed to be like this. And knowing the circumstances of Paul's life, you would expect this to be one of those moments for him. Think about the difficult. Let me tell you a little bit about the difficulty of Paul's life here. He's facing a terrible trial. Uh, he's imprisoned in Rome, and for him that means house arrest. So it's not like a dungeon. He can receive visitors, but he's physically chained to like a Roman imperial guard for all his waking hours. So he's like never alone. He always has this guard chained to him to prevent him from escaping. And he doesn't know like when his execution is going to happen. So he lives life chained up, not knowing if, you know, maybe this week or next week is going to be the time when he's uh, released maybe or put to death. You know, there's just no way of knowing. And... Uh, on top of that, Paul's worried because he has all these friends like in places all around the world that are worried and they're discouraged. Like he's started these churches in places like Philippi, which is in Greece, and they're all discouraged because they're like, how did our leader Paul get locked up? So they're discouraged because of him. So he carries that weight. Uh, so he's this incredible leader, but on the other hand, he's like about to be snuffed out. And so not only is there this physical danger that he's in, but then 
on top of all that, there's this existential question of like, hey, God, what the heck? I'm a Christian, you know, like I'm working for you. I'm doing all the things you said to do and my life has ended up like this. I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. Like, hey, God, what the heck? I thought if I trusted you, my life wouldn't end up like this. And the problem of suffering is actually the hardest for Christians or people that believe in God. Because if you don't believe in God, evil and suffering are hard. But it's like, well, that's the way life is. It's hard. But if we hold out a higher hope, if we believe in Jesus, then it becomes hard. Because it's like, Jesus, didn't I thought you were on my side. Uh, you know, how can I reconcile what's going on in my life with your love? I follow a church uh, on Facebook. There's a page called Pray for Early Rain Covenant Church. And it's this church in China, in Chengdu, China. That pronunciation is probably horrible. <laughs> Sorry, Pak. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's in China, inland China. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but... Christianity has exploded in China over the last 50 years or so. There are tons of Christians in China. And only in the last few years, particularly, the communist government has really cracked down. And so there's this church that I follow, and uh, their people get arrested all the time. Their church services get broken into, and they just like, carry out like 15 people and put them in jail. Uh, some of these people have had like their bank accounts seized by the Christian by the Chinese government just for being Christians, and uh, and so they have this page about how you can pray for this church. But you know sometimes I think like God, why are you allowing that? Like don't you want these Christians to be in China like spreading the gospel? And you know I honestly I don't know why God allows that, but thankfully we have an account of Paul and his imprisonment to help us understand uh, some of what we are to understand from situations like that. And what we'll see is that Paul is not in despair here, but he's actually rejoicing uh, because the gospel has given him a vision of life that enables him to face anything. I heard a pastor put it this way. He said, it's not the circumstances of your life, but the way you define life that will determine whether you stand or fall in this world, okay? It's not the circumstances of your life, but the way you define what life is that will determine whether you stand or fall. And so that's what we're going to think about, life, right? What's your definition of life? Uh, what are you living for? What will make life worth living for you? Uh, so what is life, right? And we're going to see that Paul says here about life is to... We're going to see how, like him, we can rejoice no matter what comes. And so we're going to look at three aspects of life. We're going to first look at God's mysterious work in life, and then the definition of life, and then the key to life. So uh, first of all, we're going to look at the, God's mysterious work in life. And we see it in a couple places here. In verse 12, uh, Paul's like, you know, what looked horrible has actually turned out pretty good because the gospel is spreading. And in verse 19, he says... Uh, what's happened is will, will turn out for my deliverance. And so there's, what Paul is seeing, first of all, is there's all this good stuff happening in spite of all the bad. So, like, you know, he's chained to a Roman guard all the time, but, like, all these Roman guards know why he's there, and they're starting to hear about Jesus. And all these other Christians that are there are kind of, like, 
being like motivated more and more by Paul's bravery and just the life he's living there. Uh, he's got this captive audience that like has to be with him all the time. So he's like telling Roman people about the gospel and he wouldn't have planned it that way, but like it's this way it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't. And there's an old uh, pastor who put it this way. He said, he's talking about verse 12 and he says, what Paul is claiming is that God is the only alchemist. You guys know what alchemy is? You remember this? Uh, alchemy is this idea. It's like this ancient idea that like there is a way to turn lead into gold. And if you know, and so lots of people in history have pursued this goal because you know lead is cheap, right? Like you can find lead anywhere. And so if you are become an alchemist, like you could potentially. Uh, have all the riches in the world because you would be able to turn lead into gold. And no one has actually done that. Uh, Many have pursued it, but this is saying God, that's exactly what God does. He does that with our life circumstances all the time. I can think of all kinds of ways where I look back and I say, man, back then I was like, God, what are you doing? And now that I'm here, I'm like, oh, thank you for doing that thing that I was complaining about. Um, and one of the classic stories about it is Joseph in the Bible. You guys know the story of Joseph? Uh, Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. Uh, it's the story, God's people is, you know, God called Jacob, and Jacob uh, had 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph, and all of them, all the other sons were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. And they thought that that was going to be the end of Joseph, but uh, Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt, and he eventually, like, somehow works his way up into like the royal court and he becomes like the prime minister of Egypt and there's this famine back in the land where his brothers all are and they end up coming to Egypt looking for food and it's Joseph that saves them. They end up like settling in Egypt and that's what leads to the Moses story and parting the Red Sea and it's all just because some like, you know, Stupid, this 11, these 11 brothers that were just being really foolish and stupid sold their brother into slavery. Uh, and God uses it. And he does it all the time. And so Paul knows that, knows that story and many others. So he's thinking, like, I wonder how God is going to turn this situation I'm in now into something golden. I hope I can see it. And we even see that, like, in, in this passage, he mentions all these opponents that, like, there are some people, Christians, who are like, don't listen to Paul, he's in jail, like, follow up. Like, they're creating division in the church. And he's like, it doesn't even matter. To me. I'm not worried about it uh, because I trust in this God. Um, if you go into the difficulties of life knowing that God can turn lead into gold, then those difficulties won't destroy you. I wonder what difficulties you face tonight. Um, sometimes we don't see anything good that could possibly come. But we can still press on if we trust this God who does mysterious things with bad, uh, bad circumstances. And in verse 19, Paul goes even further, though. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he's not actually talking about, like, escape from jail or something. It's a word meaning more like salvation. It's a way of saying, like, I will be, like, Whether I live or die, I will be saved because this terrible thing is going on in my life. Uh, Paul doesn't just come into a situation of tragedy and say, like, I bet God can turn my circumstances into gold. 
But instead he says, I bet God can use this to turn me into gold. Whether I live or die. Paul's saying, like, I actually need this. God is going to turn me into gold. And in the Bible we see this all, we see illustrations of refining. You guys know what refining is? Uh, when you, ref- like, the Bible talks about how God refines us, which is like, if you have a precious metal and you want to make it more pu- pure, you actually burn out all the impurities. It's saying God does that with us. Uh, last semester in the Gospel of John, we looked at the idea of God pruning people like a gardener prunes a vine. Same thing, right? Pruning is cutting, but it makes a vine grow in a more healthy way. Okay, so God works mysteriously in life. And, but does that mean that when bad things happen to a Christian that you're automatically being purified? No. It depends on your definition of life. So that's what we're going to look at next. Uh, how is it possible that bad things can save you and purify you as you face them? So think about, again, about the bad thing you're facing right now. How can it purify you? And the answer is what Paul says uh, in this passage. He says, for me, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Saying that's the definition. It's my bottom life. It's my bottom line. If I have this, I'm living. And there were many other philosophies in that day. You've, if you've taken intro to philosophy, you probably know about some of these, like uh, the Epicurean philosophy. You've heard of this, right? In philosophy class, uh, an Epicurean that lived in Paul's day would say, "For me, is to live is to have fun. For me, to live is to have pleasure." And plenty of Epicureans exist today in our culture, right? Uh, one of the things that Christianity gets ridiculed the most for is its sexual ethic and the way that God puts limits on sex uh, for our good. And a lot of people look at that and they say, well, that's really repressive. Or that's really impossible, you know, the, stand- the standard that's laid out in the Bible. And I can understand why people think that way. But what people who think that way need to see is that if you do think that way, in a sense you're saying, for me to live is sex. Right? Or there's a Stoic philosophy. So Stoics at that time would say things like, for me to live is to be strong and to be tough and to be in control. Stoicism is rampant today too. Like that's, we talk like this all the time, right? Like, for me to be, feel alive means I have to be like tough and on top of things and in control. And, uh, you know, what that often looks like, I, I use the illustration of a duck. What's a duck like? When you see a duck swimming in a pond, when you think it's just like floating along. And so peaceful. But if you were to look at a duck from below, what you would see is feet going crazy like this, like flapping so fast, but on the surface it's just like doo, 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 doo. and that's really what like stoicism pushes us toward, right? Because you have to look like you have like your act together. No problem. Life is easy. I'm doing so well in life and I'm in control of everything and it's so easy. Uh, but inside we panic and no wonder, you know, there's this we face this pressure in college and no wonder anxiety is so rampant on the college campus, right? Because you've got to be on top of things and in control, or else it's not life. 
Um, so some people say, for me, to live is to be moral, to be a good person, uh, which is why people tear each other apart on social media today. Uh, so there's all these different ways that we can define what life is. And most of us choose something like, you know, my life is my family, or my friends, or I, my career, my major, a relationship. And we say, for me to live, I'm not like, to, to live is to have that. But when those things fall apart, we collapse. And you either have, when those things fall apart, you either have to collapse or you have to convert, which is to say, you give up and you say, okay, Christ, be my life. There's only one thing that stands up to everything, and that's for me to live is Christ. Uh, Paul is an example of this, right? His career is over. He's got nothing left to do but sit there in prison. His life's work, done. But it's not his life. He's not despairing because of it. Uh, if your life is collapsing, if it feels like it's collapsing, the problem is not your circumstances. It's how you define what life is. If it's collapsing, it means you've made something your life that is actually not true not solid like Jesus himself is. And so, um, you know, Paul loves his friends. We saw last week how fervently he prayed for them, how passionately he prayed for them. He's locked up. He's separated from his friends, but they're not his life. You can live for friends. You can live for family. You can live for a person, but what are you going to do when they die? If your life collapses when your loves collapse, it means that your loves were your life. Uh, so we need the right definition of life. And so how, you know, Paul says to live is Christ. How can anyone get that in their heart? How can we, like, actually get this into our lives and into our heart? And so that's what I want to close with is the key to life. Last semester, if you were here, we looked at the Gospel of John. And at the end of the Gospel of John, we looked at this passage where Jesus prayed. Anybody remember? He, it was this passage where you could, like, it was a prayer of Jesus to the Father, recorded, and that was out loud. And it was the night that he was betrayed. So it was like, he's about to be, like, arrested and crucified. And we get this, like, glimpse into what is going on in his head while he's praying on that night. And what we saw is that what he was praying about was us. Like, in his time of greatest trial, he was like, Father, uh, help me because I love them so much, meaning, like, us. And the Father is responding, like, I will help you because I love them so much. Jesus lives for us. What you cannot miss in the Bible, as you consider, you know, how can I make Christ my life? What you can't miss is that Jesus lives for us. LeBron James is the best basketball player alive today, right? Everyone agrees with this for the most part. Uh, he's the best, ba whether you like follow basketball or not, I'm sure you've probably heard of LeBron James. He's the most famous basketball player in most people, a lot of people think he's the best of all time. And the thing about LeBron James is that everything in his life revolves around basketball. I saw, like, you know how players get interviewed in, like, a press conference after every game? And I happened to see this one where 
uh, a reporter was asking him about like a play at, at near the end of the game. And from memory, LeBron James recited like the final 12 plays of the game exactly as they happened. And it was like, how does he remember all this stuff? Well, it's because his life, everything in his life revolves around this game that he's so good at. Uh, when LeBron James travels, he, goes, he doesn't go anywhere in the world without a personal chef and personal trainer because everything in his life revolves around the game of basketball. Jesus says, everything about me in my life revolves around one goal. Your perfection, well-being, and happiness. Your everlasting joy. That's what everything in my life revolves. In other words, Jesus is saying, for me to live is you, God. Everything flows out of that goal. That's why he could even go to the cross and die in our place so that we could live. And it's only in response to that that Christians can say, for me to live is you, Christ. For me to live is Christ. And for you to live is Christ, then your life can be taken. You know, like Paul here is saying like, Will I die or will I live? It doesn't really matter to me. And that's a Christian response. If for me to live is Christ. You know, like Paul, you can face death and it's not, you can just say, well, life or death, either way is good. Because Christ is my life. And I have him either way. Uh, So let me just close in prayer that... uh, that transformation would be worked in our lives. So let's, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are uh, so grateful that uh, your love for us is that uh, profound and that large. And uh, we pray that we would, I just pray for everyone here that they would know that uh, tonight uh, more than they've known it in the past. And that... Uh, out of that knowledge uh, that our lives would be able to be shaped around the true definition of life. And uh, as we face, uh, we're in a room like this, there are so many difficulties and so much suffering and so many trials that we face. And uh, I pray that you would use those, uh, that you would turn those situations into gold and that you would use those situations to turn us into gold. Uh, because Christ is our life. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.